Welcome. My name is Neha Vasakha and I'm the host of the Feminist City podcast series. The Feminist City podcast series is offered by Vidhi Center for Legal Policy and looks at all things urban from a feminist perspective. If you're listening to this for the first time, I would encourage you to go back to season 1 of the series and start with the first episode on introduction to feminist urbanism. It would provide the background and context within which the rest of the episodes can be heard. If you are a continuing listener, thank you so much for your patience, encouragement and support. I am extremely pleased and delighted to be presenting season 2 of the podcast series where we will be engaging with the question of the public predominantly. What does public mean in the context of the city? Who does it include? Whose imaginations shape the public? As well as what what a feminist perspective can offer in reshaping and reconstituting what the public means. This season will see episodes dedicated to women's freedom, access to public libraries, parks, automobility politics, urban ecology, and many others. The first episode of season 2 is a two-parter conversation with Kavita Krishnan. In this episode, we discuss Kavita's book Fearless Freedom, the question of women's autonomy in the context of the recent hijab ban in Karnataka amidst the emergence of Hindu supremacist politics. I hope you enjoy this episode. I am beyond delighted to welcome Kavita Krishnan as the guest of today's episode. I have been following Kavita's work since I was in law school as a young student and this is actually in many ways a very significant moment for me and I'm hoping that this conversation would be really interesting because I'm hoping to talk to Kavita about her work. Uh, for those of you, I mean I don't think she needs an introduction but she's a secretary of All India Progressive Women's Association and she's a Politburo member of CPIML Liberation. She's a feminist and a noted women's rights activist and someone I think I've often turned to to make sense of a lot of things that were going on and I think her commentary has always been very valuable to me personally. Thank you so much Kavita for agreeing to record this podcast with me today. It's my pleasure absolutely Sneha. I'm so glad to be on this podcast because I really really think that we need more uh, discussions around these things. and sort of free flowing discussions about how we understand uh, the world around us and what kind of feminist uh, gaze can we turn on the issues around us so it's uh, totally my pleasure to be on this podcast Thank you so much Kavita. So um so Kavita you've written a book called Fearless Freedom and in fact when I was doing research on my project so I wrote a report a couple of years ago in 2020 on making a feminist city and just to tell you a little brief about how I came about doing this is interesting in 2012 when the Nirbhaya case had happened in Delhi I was a young law student and as everybody we were participated in protests except back then when I was in 2012 maybe I was 19 and at the same time all of the you know the movements and changes to criminal law were happening while I was in law school and then back in 2017 or 18 now when I was working as a lawyer there was another case that happened in Hyderabad which was the Priyanka Reddy case where she was a young vet who was murdered and, and very grotesque i mean i don't want to go into the details of the case but it was very similar in one sense of sexual violence and the murder of a young woman who did nothing wrong except for being in the wrong place at the wrong time it was almost as if the city was just always the wrong place at the wrong time for a for a woman alone and so and what was also alarming at that point of time is that the police in hyderabad committed an encounter killing like it was an extrajudicial killing of the accused 
and people in hyderabad celebrated and lauded them with garlands and something about this and i'm from hyderabad so this was very disquieting and i suddenly got the sense that nothing had really changed in 10 years nothing in even though the laws had been different there were no structural changes in the city didn't really become safer if anything it felt even scarier at the at the way in which it was being dealt with so when i came across your book it was fascinating because i was reading your book as part of my research you as well as other feminist activists and writers like shilpa fadke or navita tamanan a lot of people that i've read you know in college have talked about autonomy and about why autonomy is actually what makes women safe so i was just wondering if you could comment as somebody who was at the forefront both at the nirbhaya protests as well as today in 2022 what do you see has changed or what what do you see has not changed well um sneha i think that uh, i see two kinds of movements that have happened since 2012 up till now one is that i think uh, there is a much more um sort of conscious assertion of autonomy by young women so you see movements in so many campuses protesting against discriminatory hostile rules against and so in these are diverse campuses right these are campuses all the way from raipur to trivandrum to bhu okay to jamia uh, to aligarh muslim university and jnu du of course so i i think it's a very and i've seen similar protests happen in rohtak in campuses in very very diverse places so i think that that is certainly something that has changed in the sense that young women are no longer willing to quietly accept without challenge the notion that they can be kept safe by curtailing their liberties so i think there is an assertion of autonomy and a, a push back against victim blaming so i kept i keep saying this that you know the protest after 2012 uh, there have been many anti rape protests you know before and since and so it that wasn't just the only one or anything like that what was special about it i think is that what was unique about it was that it was the first one in which this very strong very clear message came across from ordinary women protesters saying don't blame us we are not the responsible for rape and it doesn't matter when and so it was a particular moment so i don't think of myself i know that i did not i was not somebody who mobilized thousands of people uh, to come out at uh, to protest that happened spontaneously that happened organically and Uh, really the protesters themselves are responsible for that what i think um, i could help with at that point was that so many people especially young women were tuned in to basically to expect to hope you know to to listen to something that made sense to them and what they were getting from say voices inside parliament were absolutely shocking rubbish like uh you know she is a zindalash and uh, you know um, other people talking about lakshman rekhas and you name it right and uh, that guy what's his name that uh, congress mp abhijit abhijit banerjee i think no the son of the former president i think uh, so yeah pranam mukherjee's son yeah yeah he yeah. said something about uh, something about dented painted women and i mean each of them seem to be across parties seem to be having a competition for who can say the most atrocious uh, vomit making thing you know 
so yeah. uh, i think at that point there were there was a lot of relief i realized uh, when videos of uh, one protest that we had held outside sheila dikshit's house that a friend had uploaded online and somehow that sort of uh, was circulated a lot and heard by a lot of people because i think it was when genuinely you know viral in the very organic sense that people literally yeah. shared it with their friends to say you know here is something that is finally you know something we are saying articulated yeah yeah we are yeah. saying and you know here is someone else also saying it so there was a sense of confirmation and all of that and that was the clearly this point that you know you can't um, you know safety should not mean uh, should not be a code word for basically uh, surveilling women even more tightly for binding them even more tightly and all of that that isn't protection and safety and what not so you yeah. should actually be protecting autonomy yeah. and uh, you should be talking about uh, not just those acts of sexual violence that happen in uh, you know stranger rape basically but that you should be making the connections between all kinds of gender based violence so you can't have a yeah. situation where you will have outrage when there is an uh, nirbhaya type incident that happens or the priyanka reddy type incident that happens but you yeah. will at the same time you know be approving when inside every household you know young women are uh, prevented by their own family members beaten up for asserting their autonomy in in terms of their love their relationships their choices whatever right so yeah. i think that was something that we were certainly trying to say and that was where the book also came from because that was yeah. the phrase that came out in that speech very uh, naturally that if you want to protect anything protect our bake off azadi so you know fearless free yeah. so yeah. i think that's where it came from yeah okay that's amazing uh, so the question i sort of wanted to ask you is after 10 years what do you see that has not changed because why is it that 10 years after nirbhaya yeah. uh, priyanka reddy happens or more recently what happened in kasturba nagar in delhi so yeah the, if you could comment so i think that. i think there there is a change for the worse okay i would say that there is change but a change for the worse because i'll explain why i'm not saying that at all uh, lightly i've really thought about it. i feel that at the same time that you have all these wonderful women's movements asserting autonomy there's also a political consolidation and attack against women's autonomy so what you have yeah. since 2014 you have a party that came to government ruling party yeah. in india that came to yeah. government by appealing to a very regressive notion of a very let, let's say a very regressive rhetoric of protection that yeah. within itself hid a uh, justification for communal violence so you had yeah. uh, the man who is home minister of the country today basically justifying riots you know anti muslim violence in muzaffarnagar western up asking for votes there for narendra modi as prime minister saying yeah. that um, there is a particular community that attacks the honor of our mothers and daughters and sisters and if you want you know people don't choose to riot they riot only when they have forced to defend this you know to protect their women's uh, their their women etc so that whole yeah. thing was so loaded so problematic and from there till now you know around 7 8 8 8 more than 8 years later where are we we have this whole you know in measure after measure that the government is passing there is an ideological basis that says women shouldn't be allowed to choose 
So if you look at something like the various ordinances against love jihad, that whole discourse of love jihad basically says Hindu women don't know what's good for them. Muslim men are always evil. And any love between a Hindu woman and a Muslim man is impossible. Any Muslim man who loves or marries a Hindu woman is a rapist and deserves to be killed. This is yeah. the whole narrative. And the other legal uh, framework is the age, the raising of the age of marriage from 18 to 21, yeah. which is being seen as a very progressive move in many circles. But they don't get it right that you don't, that the government does not get to, should not get to control when an adult woman gets married or an adult person gets married. Feminists have been saying for ages that the age of marriage for men should be reduced from 21 to 18. Because if you can vote at 18, you can marry. Should yeah. you marry? Nobody is saying you should get married at 18 or you must get married at 18. Not at all. But the point is that if there are circumstances in which a woman, you know, gets married, should yeah. she be sent to prison? Should her parents be sent to prison? Should her husband be sent to prison? That is really the issue here, right? So that yeah. is something which is, again, lost. And uh, just yeah. as a last comment on the love jihad thing, you know, just I was shocked to see that quite recently, you know, the UP elections are going on and there was a man who converted from... He was a Muslim man. He converted to Hinduism in order to marry his beloved. And he had a completely Hindu wedding. And he did it precisely because he said that, look, our love is what matters. And I am willing to do this in order to, if that's what will satisfy your parents and so on, I'm willing for that. After that, he was uh, shot dead and killed. And uh, you have had in uh, various, you know, you've had various Hindu supremacist leaders inside UP in the last uh, couple of months, basically, uh, including at these so-called Sansads and all, they have been speaking about this murder as the justified execution of a rapist, you know. So I think, you know, where you come from, you mentioned Priyanka Reddy. I remember the crowds in uh, at the time of the Nirbhaya protest uh, shouting for the death penalty and how we went in to argue with them and to convince them that that was not a good demand. And I see the connection because there is in society that uh, sense of patriarchal vengeance, which has nothing to do with women's assertion, nothing to do with women's autonomy, not nothing even to do with a definition of rape that a woman can recognize. It is yeah. a completely patriarchal construct of who gets to be called a rapist. So even yeah. though this man is someone a woman loved and married of her own accord, they are able yeah. to propagate this as the execution of a rapist. Yeah. So from the state to the mob, you know, here you are. Yeah. No, it is. I mean, it is a very depressing reality. I think because I one of the things that I've often felt is. As a feminist, it's a very difficult position for anybody who assumes the title of a feminist to be in. I don't particularly support marriage. I don't think that marriage is something that any society should advocate for or the centering of marriage in legal, political and social institutions to me is the basis of women's oppression. Except at the same time, I often find myself defending a woman's right to marry. Even as I'm counseling all my friends, why are you getting married? What is, you don't need to do this. So, and at the same time, this is also, I see these double binds, these complex, messy navigations women themselves have to make living in the society. And feminists who are 
constantly advocating for a liberated society while living within a an extremely unliberated society are then then we are called out on hypocrisy or like oh where is your ideological purity or what is it that and i find it a very interesting position to be in when you have to defend the right for people to do something that you personally may not even agree with but that's actually that, that in order to have some of these conversations requires a level of nuance and also an understanding of history and social and political context and i'm here talking about and we've talked about this touched upon this briefly now the raging debate in karnataka and the cases going on in karnataka high court about hijab and the whether young women's right to wear a hijab to go to an educational institution personally witnessing some of the protests that were happening at udupi and like the, they were extremely painful even to witness one because i find it shocking that in 2022 we have to say that a woman's right to education should not be hindered for any reason least of all her uh, attire irrespective of what she wants to wear but what i like what i would like you to sort of address is something that you already mentioned right like everything is end to end you know the it's so patriarchal that women's safety in my opinion has always become the trojan horse where governments use women's safety as a way as the as the as the as the burning issue so you are unsafe which is true women are unsafe but you are unsafe so give us more powers we will institute more surveillance powers we will increase policing we will you know uh, there were those proposals in up and madhya pradesh i think where they said or oh, we will ask women to come to the police station to report or we will use facial recognition to check if women are in distress or not which is all essentially overreach of you know assuming greater and greater powers of policing in the name of women and then we also saw over the past year an unprecedented jailing of young women who were speaking out so you had young women activists who've been jailed for months on end under all kinds of trumped up charges for editing an online document etc so what i was curious if you could comment in terms of the specific kind of hindu supremacist patriarchy uh, brahmanical patriarchy that sort of we are witnessing uh and how that sort of plays a role in both simultaneously using women's safety as the as the ostensible purpose but ultimately that is very that is being used to curtail women's autonomy in in a and targeting women from minority communities so i think um i'll try and keep this really you know simple in the way in which i'm able to see it okay uh why is it that i don't feel any kind of dilemma when i look at what is happening in karnataka and i find it easy to navigate this situation i think the first thing is that uh, one should have a degree of kindness as women towards each other first i think that is the thing and if you are a man and you're listening to this podcast if you identify as male and you're listening to this podcast you know let me beg you if you feel certain that you know what is good for women and what they should be doing uh, please you know don't do that please please invite doubt into your mind and invite you know question yourself and uh, be kind to uh, women you know be kind to women's choices why do i say that because i think that as a young woman i remember a young woman you know let, let's say school girl i thought i was very clear about what i believed in i didn't believe in any kind of veiling i thought that any any uh, ideology of modesty was uh, rubbish but at the same time i was a young a young girl 
who wasn't very comfortable, you know, uh, even wearing a swimsuit, let me say. Okay. I didn't feel particularly, you know, comfortable in it. Now, that was already a duality that I was living, that in ideologically, I had zero modesty. Uh, but uh, in reality, I was a fairly shy person around guys. I was a fairly private person. And I didn't. Now, if somebody had said, oh, in order to prove that you're feminist, you have to dress in a particular way. You have to, you know, dress in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable. And only then will we accept that you have a right to study or something. Ah, that would be horrific, right? What on earth? That's complete nonsense, right? So the point is all of us have, uh, even marriage, as you said, okay, this is something I know so many feminist friends, uh, myself included, these are things that we have been through, these are debates, we all agree that the institution of marriage is, uh, you know, there are, there are so many problems with it. But the point is that the decisions you make are taken in the real world, they are taken, uh, you know, you are weighing something with something else and trying to figure out what is it that you can do with the greatest degree of comfort and so on and so forth, right? So something simple like even uh, if it is a live-in couple that is in love with each other, living, each other, uh, living in with each other, very simple thing that although there are legal cases that have recognized the rights of the live-in woman, yeah, those are very difficult to access. So if something yeah. were to happen to the male partner, it may be yeah. completely possible. Suppose it's an intercaste or a, you know, a couple that is living together and yeah. uh, the husband uh, passes away for some reason. The yeah. woman may find herself completely mm. deprived of even what they have together you know, earned or uh, stayed, you know, the house they are living in or whatever, because his family could claim everything, even though he may have been completely distanced from his family and have nothing to do with them because they rejected his choice of yeah. a wife, whatever, right? So we are living in a very, we are living in a situation where there are multiple uh, problems and let's not judge a woman for whatever path she chooses to take in that, right? Similarly yeah. for the hijab, and in the case of the hijab, I can so much, I can, I can so well understand what is going on there, right? Like, you know, yeah. if there is an attack on your identity, yeah. if you are being attacked for being Muslim, yeah. uh, you may want to assert your identity as Muslim. I remember yeah. a young woman several years back who was active with a feminist Muslim organization in Bombay. I met her at a convention in Delhi. And she stood up to say, look, um, I don't even think of myself as particularly a believing, you know, I'm not, I'm not a very devout person. I wasn't. I'm not a very orthodox or devout person. But she said, that doesn't matter. The very fact that my name is Muslim means that I will be attacked for being Muslim, right? So yeah. when I realized yeah. this, she said, I decided that I wanted to wear a headscarf simply to say that, all right, I am Muslim, you know, so I'm showing solidarity with my Muslim brothers and sisters who are believing Muslims, right? They are attacked yeah. for who they are. So yeah. I'm doing this as an act of, you know, solidarity with them and to say that I defiantly to say that I belong with them. Uh, yeah. That's one reason. Another reason could be uh, that women uh, genuinely feel that, yes, I mean, what is a headscarf after all? It is something that is, uh, you know, you wear a dupatta, you are covering the dupatta over your head. Big deal. Yeah. You know? We all do it. I do it. Certainly I do it. Okay. And uh, on so for so many reasons you do it. Now, are you going to go into the reasons? Are you doing it for modesty or to protect yourself from the sun or because you are a devout 
Hindu or Muslim. You know, how are you supposed to answer that? The point is you should have every right to do it, right? Uh, Absolutely. And then the other reason that suppose it is a burqa. Some people are saying, oh, but look, they're not wearing hijab, they're wearing a burqa. So I'm like, you know, uh, do you know the history of the sari, the burqa? These are uh, forms of clothing that became common when women started going out to work. And the whole idea was that you will have, uh, so, you know, you will wear something which is okay for the outside world to see. Okay, so the yeah. point is that then even even the sari as we know it came into being in that context. It was not worn in the same way. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a piece of clothing of convenience. I have seen, I've had so many friends in college, I remember, who used to, and in my hostel, who routinely, yeah. who, wear, who wore the abaya, you know, over. So it would be some yeah. uh, single colored or black or whatever, and they would put it on over their clothes and go out and come back and take it off, right? It was yeah. such, a, uh, such a matter of fact thing that they did. And I think they did it because they didn't want to have to think about it too much. That is yeah. my point. My point is all of us, as we decide what to wear every day, probably don't weigh over much on, oh my God, am I putting this on because, you know, why am I putting it on? Should I do this? Should I not? You don't want to, right? You want to live your life uh, breathing free and uh, not, yeah. uh, not having to think about it till you want to think about it, right? Yeah. So can yeah. we not just accept and respect that uh, some women may want to do it because as a negotiation with their respective communities, families, whatever, like so many of us do, some women yeah. may do it genuinely because they believe that this is how they should be as good Muslims, fine. But having said that, I'll also add the other part. There are uh, What I find is that there are some people who will clap for one part of feminism and then get very shocked when they listen to the same principle being applied elsewhere. Okay. Yeah. So uh, yeah. there'll be those who'll be clapping uh, while I say, oh, you know, it's wrong to prevent women from uh, wearing uh, jeans. Yeah. Oh, they're with you. They're clapping away. Wrong to prevent women from attending college, you know, send her back from college because she's wearing a deep cut, deep cut dress. And I protest and they'll say, ah, yes, yes, very good. The minute I say, wrong to send a woman back from college because she's wearing a hijab oh my god you're defending the hijab which is patriarchal and this and that so i'm like you know high heels may be patriarchal if, if god knows what all the earrings i'm wearing may be patriarchal who the hell knows the point is that you have to respect my decision to wear it you know for whatever reason and yeah. please don't judge the other thing is that there are those who are clapping very hard when i'm saying for the rights of the hijab a right of the women to wear the hijab and they recognize that but the minute you go from there to the other counterpart which is that you should not have anyone any organization any power even if it is a power within uh, certain communities any community be it hindu community muslim community christian community we don't want somebody coming and saying shaming you for wearing yeah. certain clothes right so let me yeah. give you an example. When I was in college in uh, JNU, I remember that there was a good uh, friend, a Christian girl, who suddenly took it upon herself to wake, you know, she'd wake up early in the morning and one young girl, new girl came and complained to us saying, you know, I wear a long t-shirt from my room to the bath bathroom, which is literally not even half, a couple of seconds. Okay, and it's a long t-shirt in which I've slept and I just go, you know, holding my buckets to the loo, bathroom. And this woman came and said, you can't dress like that. You have to wear, you know, proper clothes and you can't go in a long T-shirt and this and that. 
So now uh, my friend and I, my roommate and I, uh, we were older and we felt we needed to stand with this young kid. And so the next morning, both of us, wore, we didn't have long t-shirts, we wore short t-shirts and we stood there near the loo waiting for the bar, waiting for the bathroom. And this girl came and saw us there, uh, you know, the one who was doing the moral policing and was quite upset. So uh, she was a friend. So we explained to her later that we didn't do this to snub you. We did this because you were wrong. You shouldn't be doing yeah. this. You shouldn't be making yeah. that girl think twice about what she's wearing from her room to go to the bath. This is a women's hostel. Let her wear what the hell she likes, you know. So yeah. uh, I think I've covered that ground. Of course, yeah. you asked me about the whole uh, politics over the ban on the hijab and this whole noise over the hijab. Yeah. And I didn't really get there yet because I wanted to cover this much first. And yeah. just cover this idea that a young woman wearing any old thing, a woman wearing anything, yeah. the biggest yeah. thing she wants in public spaces is to be able to move around without undue visibility and undue scrutiny. Yeah. You don't yeah. want the perpetual scrutiny of the CCTV cameras. You don't want the perpetual scrutiny of somebody judging you. You don't want the perpetual scrutiny, certainly, of a yeah. uh, mob that hates your identity right yeah yeah that's awful yeah if i can just like yeah. add i honestly I, I lived in delhi for a year and i used to take the delhi metro every day to work and initially i was like oh why is there only one reserved compartment for women women are 50 percent of the population half the train should be reserved but i will travel in the main compartment because it's my principle i do not want to use this after one day I was so exhausted and I was so horrified by the way that I felt like I was being watched and I felt harassed and like the gaze and it it was so and I realized that if I wanted to do this I couldn't do work <laughs> it's like if I'm going to my job and I had to pick a battle and I remember after that day I never took I I would always take the women's compartment because just just to go about my life or to fight a battle and I feel like as young women of any whether whichever wherever uh, you come from whichever community you belong to when you live and you're born into a hetero patriarchy that is like world over it's not unique to India you're constantly fighting battles within the home outside the home within yourself uh, do I want to wear this because I want to wear this or do I want to wear this because I am I want to be attractive to me sometimes I feel like getting on that path is like living constantly negotiating and wrangling different forces at different points in time which is why it is so painful to witness and and, and to ha to have people sort of talk about anybody or to frame this as some kind of a liberal conversation about is this good or is this bad which is such a I mean, I I was sort of horrified and very disappointed by even media response to this, where somebody says, "Oh, what are we defending in the in this context?" As if to say, women of every kind know what their battles are. If, for instance, I'm my parents wouldn't let me apply to colleges in Delhi because it's Delhi. So when I was in twelfth standard, I was literally cut off from applying to any premier institution because Delhi was an unsafe city. There are educational decisions which change or shape our trajectories of our lives are kept from us on these notions of safety. If, for instance, if I could have told my parents, I will literally wear whatever you tell me to wear, but you let me go to the best institution that I want to study this in, I probably would be okay with making that. But that's my trade-off to make. It's not for anybody else. And I sometimes feel like in this process, every time 
people push you into sort of picking the side instead of empowering you to be autonomous and it and it it, it is particularly scary to me and I, and i think you would talk about the context of the hindu supremacy that we are seeing and i wanted to just add that i think that islamophobia has always been a part of like i grew up in i grew up in hyderabad and i remember it was like a, oh we will live together but no intermingling like you will not fall in love with a muslim boy you will not fall in love with somebody outside of your caste or your community i have like before going to college i have heard these i have heard this this as a narrative so you can't trans you know that there is always a lakshman rekha that's constantly drawn around your decisions and choices but something that i've noticed even within my own family within outside is it's so alarming now everybody is so politically aware of being hindu which was very strange because i have not seen that happen and now it's whatever was that subtle bigotry and I'm, i'm i feel like bigotry has always been a common feature of any dominant community it, it doesn't know society exists without it but it's become so open and legitimized to so much to say that nobody is afraid of saying it anymore it was almost almost like no they're not worried of being coming across as a bigot it's like you're deriving respect or like some kind of pride in being loud bigots which is terrifying and which in in the context of what what do you see how this this control over women's clothing is playing as a role in the context of just larger political processes that are at play and in terms of and i also wanted you to sort of articulate why is it important for a feminist to pay attention to in terms of why should we be particularly vigilant over the compromising of constitutional values so i think the first thing is that as a fem are you absolutely right when you said that this this business about people uh, identifying politically as hindu and that always means identifying politically as anti muslim so you're hindu yeah. only if you hate the muslim this is something dr yeah. ambedkar also had said that look you know basically hindus identify as this caste that caste but they come together as hindu only when they are seeing themselves as attacking somebody else right so i think that that yeah. is that is very much a very dangerous very terrible situation no doubt because what a terrible thing to identify as someone some as some entity which is always defined as hateful of another identity right i yeah. think what i want to what i want to invite uh, the audience of this podcast to think about is that uh, when we look around us no matter which community you're from just look around you at the public spaces that you that are there around you uh, from the minute you step out of your house uh to the bus that you take or the train that you take or the street that you walk in or the uh municipality office that you may need to visit to complain about your plumbing or whatever it is or uh the schools the colleges you name it okay any any institution even the police station even the courts okay um and tell me do you really you know what what do you see really really look keep a note you know do this as an exercise for one day note down all the religious symbols that you see publicly displayed you know and you will notice that whether it is on people's persons what they happen to be wearing what they happen to be saying displaying what they happen to be so uh, public places like a very casual picture of a uh, god in a government office in wherever 
the fact that your school will every year celebrate Saraswati Puja, irrespective, even I've known even Christian institutions to celebrate Saraswati Puja, like the Syrian Christian College in which my mother used to teach. They used to do a Saraswati Puja every year, they used to have it. In fact, they had made a big statue of a Saraswati right in front of uh, the college. So you have that. Then you have the fact that Hindu women can continuously, you know, this whole idea that, oh my God, if they are allowed to wear the hijab, then we will wear a saffron shawl. Now, saffron shawl, where does it come from? There is no comparison. You want to wear a saffron shawl, go ahead and wear, but that is political wear. And it's already worn as political wear. But it's not as though you're not already wearing other Hindu things, right, in public. You wear yes, the tilak, you yes. wear the bindi, you wear the sindur, the Sikh person, uh, boy may wear the patka, okay, uh, the Sikh woman also may wear something covering her head, you name it, okay. Now, yeah. the minute you say this, the Hindu supremacist right is propagating, you are demanding that somebody should take off their sindur, take off their, uh, you know, tilak, bindi, patka, you name it, which is ridiculous. We are saying the yeah. opposite. We are saying, please let them wear what they are wearing and please let women also who want to wear a hijab, wear a hijab. This is yeah. all because hijab, what your hijab is part of the diversity around us, you know. It is, and when yeah. you look at a person wearing a hijab or a burqa, for that matter, when you let me tell an urban audience, you know, since yours is about feminism in the city, if you're an urban educated young woman, uh, if you see a woman wearing a pallu or a ghungat or whatever it is, can you refrain from assuming that they are anti-feminist victims of some barbaric era? Can you assume instead that there may be a strong feminist woman over there whom you don't know yet? You are judging her only by the piece of cloth and where she positions it over her head. Please don't yeah. do that. Okay, the, yeah. and I'm saying this even about women who are wearing pallu, ghungat, etc. Okay, I can tell you that in my organization, uh, there are lakhs of women in rural India. The way they wear their sari automatically covers their head. Okay, almost all of them will wear it that way. If yeah. they are married, almost all of them will wear the sindur. Our job is not, I never, I never, I can't remember a single instance where we would go in to argue, you shouldn't be wearing this. Instead, if they would ask me, why are you not wearing it? Say, yeah. uh, Sindur, or they would ask me, are you from South India? Is that why you don't wear? In Bengal, I'll go, they'll say, you know, Shaka Paula Shindur, uh, you, you are not wearing. Does that mean that uh, you, because you're South Indian? So I would reply that no, South Indians have their own other symbols, which also I don't wear. And this is my reason for not doing so. The reason I would offer is not to say the Sindur is patriarchal. I, because that would be, yeah. you know, insulting them. They also, they are not patriarchal women. These are women who are fighting much braver, much more courageous fights than I am. What I say yeah. is that, look, to me, the line of the Sindur or the Tali or whatever it is, uh, is differentiating me from the unmarried or the widowed woman. And so the unmarried yeah. single woman or the widowed woman is looked down as lower. So I don't want yeah. that. Uh, I don't want to ha display a symbol that is <clears throat> being used to put down other women that's my choice okay i would that's yeah. my but i'm not asking you to uh, you know do that i'm not saying that this is a you know this is in order to qualify as a feminist have you taken off your sindur or not have you taken off your hijab or not oh come on you know that's not it right and hindu majoritarianism is yeah. such that it allows it it makes you think that wearing of any other symbols you know hindu symbols which are so multiple so plentiful everywhere is okay because this is hindu india 
but wearing a hijab yeah. is a sign of muslimness they are not attacking it yeah. because they are they have any problems with patriarchy they are attacking it yeah. because they themselves are the same hindu supremacist groups in the same coastal karnataka have attacked uh, pubs and you know bars and so on and absolutely yeah and clothes so today if you let them yeah. get away with saying you can't wear hijab tomorrow they'll say you can't wear a skirt you can't wear jeans you can't go do, do this you can't do that you know you can't be seen with a man you name it right so you can't let these yeah. thugs yeah. do that number one and number two of course yeah. the fact that you know uh, they are attacking this if you don't believe that they are attacking this because of muslimness this is not something that suddenly came up this hijab just have to yeah. go back and read golwalkar and read dindayal upadhyay these are rss yeah. uh, ideologues in different times so there are some who will say oh, golwalkar is a hardliner but dindayal upadhyay talks about integral humanism and so on please don't get fooled by any of that and don't take my word for it just go and read golwalkar's uh, bunch of thoughts uh, read Dindayal Upadhyay's articles, they're all available on a website online in Hindi and yeah. English. So both of them very clearly say that India is Hindu. To wear yeah. something, to yeah. display something Hindu is not to be sectarian or it is. it can never be communal, it can never be whatever because whatever you are doing as a Hindu, you are doing it in a Hindu country and so that's good. But anyone who is asserting an identity that is not Hindu and by the way, they don't only name Muslims. they name yeah. muslims they name sikhs they name tamils they name telugu speaking people any they name uh, anti hindi movements when anybody who is identifying as anything different from hindu hindi uh, whatever you are automatically yeah. anti national these are the words that golwalkar is using and then the alupadhyay yeah. goes even further to say that if you uh, muslims should be driven away from india if you don't want them to be driven away there's only one option and that option is that they should embrace uh, there's no question of hindu muslim unity hindu muslim yeah. unity means hindu separate muslim separate each of them has a right to live like they live but they can unite and they can be friends right no yeah. they say you are not allowed to do that you can only live in india if you become hindu if you embrace hindu Uh, identity yeah. because hindu identity is indian identity so this is why they're yeah. attacking the hijab and how on earth can we you know forget this and uh, say that this should not yeah. be the no absolutely thank you so much and i'm really glad you said this i i will include your articles on this topic in the reading list and i'll also make sure that i'll link readings that you're referring to so that people can read this for themselves because as you were speaking kavita i was realizing that this is not i mean as much as there has been an aggressive propaganda to sort of construct a narrative for advocating hindutva over the last decade this is also much deeper i i feel like when i was growing up there is so much misinformation and lack of critical social sciences education for most of my friends who studied engineering or who didn't study social sciences at at, at the level of undergraduate the last time we studied social sciences was in 10th standard in our state government textbook that does not really go into anything more complicated than a very simplistic narrative of history so i when i have conversations with some of my friends who did not study social sciences we are talking at cross purposes because we don't even have a shared version of reality of the country for instance women's history is not part of any history courses so when we when they say history they mean men's history and so we had a specific course on women's history where i was like oh my god i didn't know all of these things happened and then you hear of books like radha kumar's work or you know any of the feminist that itself is such a marginalized uh, like for instance our women in law course at law school was an optional program with 19 students 
17 girls and two boys or something like that so it was almost like it's a even though women are 50% of the population anything to do with them is an option oh if you are enthusiastic okay which is also why for me when i talk about the city i find it fascinating and like a completely bewildering that if you don't understand how 50% of the population lives and uses the city what kind of an expert are you who are you making these cities for and in this regard what you're describing also is this notion i feel like is hindu women women are not ever provoked to think about their own domination i have not seen one family that i've entered whose home i've entered into where i've seen the man enter the kitchen and cook or act like it's his job to feed himself or his family and these are somehow questions that somehow nobody seems to be asking them because then saving of these women are never women from their community never their wives or their daughters but somebody else somewhere and that also comes from like a complete lack of understanding of muslim law or these like narratives that oh at least we are better our community is better we are more progressive which is ridiculous because once you actually even just study law when my when i was studying personal law to realize that Hindu marriage didn't have the concept of divorce it was a sacrament the fact that marriage was not seen as a contract it was extremely shocking and when you read some of rohit day's work where he describes how conversion was actually being used by bengali hindu women to get out of abusive marriages because their husbands were beating them to death so it is even our own history if you read that's one this ideological way in which these are also constructed right and i this is where i really enjoy reading um marxist or like uh, left thinkers who talk about ideology and ideological state institutions in how the narratives that we see playing out is not an accident but a it's it's engineered in that way so i, I was curious to hear about your comments on that yeah. just before just coming to that i just wanted to comment just uh, very briefly on what you were saying about hindu women and domination see uh, the general uh, sense that is uh, you know propaganda let's say that is put out by the hindu supremacist uh, far right in india and when i say far right well they're in power so they have a lot of power you can't just think of them as some lunatic fringe or whatever you know they are in power they have the power to enforce this so they say that oh look at these feminists they only talk about how hindu women are oppressed they see only hindu festivals as being oppressive or whatever and they don't talk about muslims and they go they are defending hijab etc this is very commonly said so i just wanted to quickly kind of um, you know just refer to uh, any listeners in that direction to say that you know that's actually complete rubbish okay the point is that we you know the whole idea is about consent right so uh, i think that we should be respectful of women who are uh, celebrating a festival even somebody doing a fast you know for whatever reason okay even someone who is uh, i may not do it but she does it yeah. and i should not uh, you know judge her and think of her as a simpleton because she does it okay i should yeah. be able to see her with respect if she is worshiping if she is visiting a temple if she has her own little personal god in her home i don't mind i mean it's not a question of my minding the point is i have no business minding i shouldn't yeah. i should literally mind my own business and i shouldn't make it she is not oppressing anyone the problem is the place where feminists or others uh, you know anybody steps in and says no is when the thing that you are defining as a practice a religious practice encroaches on the rights of someone else right so you are enforcing it on someone else who doesn't want yeah. it right 
So if yeah. you're going to say that as a woman, I will not allow you to enter a certain space because you're menstruating. And I want to enter it, but you're preventing me because then your practice is something that is encroaching on my rights, right? As an yeah. individual, you, it becomes a harmful practice. If you're going to lock yeah. menstruating girls up like they do in Nepal in some little cave for the you know purpose of three, four days, five days, that's awful. That is wrong, right? So it's really about consent. So uh, if there's any confusion on this, whether it is Muslims, whether yeah. it is Hindus, whether it is Christians, whether it is anybody, okay, if they yeah. are doing something which is encroaching on the rights of uh, women, if there is female genital mutilation in the uh, Bora community in India, yes, we speak against it. We we don't want it to happen. We want to be able to educate. Uh, people there to uh, to give up this practice, this terrible practice that affects uh, the lives of women forever, right? The bodies of women forever. Yeah. So the point is that the selectiveness comes in on your side if you are objecting to this, because you don't. Uh, it offends you when we speak up against a Hindu practice that may be violating the rights of Dalits or violating the rights of women, but it doesn't offend you uh, when. You criticize, you're willing to criticize only something that is far away. In fact, you're going to yeah. accept my patriarchy is my culture. Your patriarchy is patriarchy. Okay, it's like that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I don't think this is something only true of the Hindu, Hindutvavadi or even ordinary uh, Hindu culture. I think it is true even if you look at it, I keep, you know, when there are Western journalists who talk to me, uh, hmm. I have had a very hard time in the, in the, in the wake of 2012-13. Uh, they would call up and they would say, rape is a terrible problem in India, isn't it? And I would be like, yeah, rape is a huge problem in India, but it's a huge, aren't you from France? It's a major problem there. Sexual harassment on the streets is rampant in France. Anybody who's visited France knows that, they complain about it. Um, you know, so there are so many things. You are, uh, you are not able to, the test for your feminism is whether you're able to see patriarchy that is wearing the same clothes that you are that is behaving like you do in your own culture, yeah. in your own backyard, in your own home. If you can't see it there, then something's wrong with your vision, right? You're only able to see it somewhere yeah. else. So I just wanted to get that out of the way. One thing I also wanted to sort of talk to you about is just the spate of privatization that we see and then the particular type of neoliberal construction of the city where the notion of the public has vanished. So there are no more public parks. There are very little infrastructural, you know, uh, investments happening in a truly public as open, public as free, public where you can walk in and walk out without having to pay money is vanishing. And so, which goes hand in hand, which I think is also in on, on the face of it, it seems a little contradictory where you have socially liberal people but economically conservative that, oh, we want the free market means absolute freedom. Except to me, the fact that we have such a robust public infrastructure in this country existed that when we enter a bus, it doesn't matter who it is. It's cheap and it's accessible to everybody, irrespective of their uh, identity, social identity. So I was sort of interested in if you could comment on how these two things are going hand in hand. So it's not that Hindutvavadi is not delinked from a neoliberal rhetoric. In fact, that they have very deep alliances between, you know, keeping the family unit tight in all of these cases. Because the minute the state offers free education, free transport, women don't need to depend on the family. 
children young people don't need to depend on the family so when you take away very public you know uh, provisions which the concept of the welfare state has been eroded which makes us more reliant on social systems and then they are communalizing all of this so yeah i i, I was just hoping yeah, you could speak to that yeah. you asked about you know the way, the places where uh, hindu supremacy and liberal uh, neoliberal economics kind of meet yeah. well uh, one very easy instance to understand is that uh, if you take something like you know women workers right women workers whom uh, they are working in say garment factories in tamil nadu or uh, karnataka wherever so the point is these are young women uh, very young girls coming from dalit backgrounds and so on and uh, the people employing them are basically working for these big huge uh, multinational clothing brands and all of that mm-hmm. uh, what are the work conditions there the work conditions are basically bonded labor uh, yeah. this is something very well documented uh, i'm sure you can provide the links in your podcast yeah. to you know show where there are there are people uh, organizations that have documented this almost yearly for more than a decade where they have pointed out that this bonded labor is continuing in tamil nadu garment factories okay uh, likewise yeah. the pcl report uh, on karnataka also now the thing yeah. is that um, what is happening there uh, these 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 factories are basically keeping these women captive uh, literally captive under lock and key in a hostel and uh, they are advertising that hostel saying that oh you know women workers will not you, your daughter you can send her to work here because she won't be allowed to go out anywhere don't worry okay so she is literally locked up she can't befriend anybody outside her workplace she can't have a mobile phone so she can only go from her place of stay to her play, you know from the hostel to the factory and back she can't go out enjoy a film whatever whatever right so the general benefits which come from having a job where you have your own income you can spend your income on something else and you have you know all those are restricted here and if the woman yeah. doesn't have a mobile phone you ask the factory why can't she have a mobile phone and they say oh their parents don't like it no the parents don't like it because the uh, idea is that oh then she'll fall in love with someone of the wrong caste and all of that and we don't want that but you ask them why 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 are you banning it and of course what they don't say is that if she does, if she has if she has a mobile phone she will not only be able to speak to boyfriends she will also be or girlfriends or whatever is her you know orientation and cup of tea she will also speak to union leaders she will speak about how she has been oppressed that day and how she is not being paid how they are not paying her every month or uh, they are paying her at the end of 3 years and they are arbitrarily cutting off bits of money and they are telling her that you are earning your dowry and this and that she'll be able to talk about the bondage right you don't want yeah. to do that so the point yeah. is that so this ideology of the factory as a family where the patriarchal uh, uh, you know manager and this and that are protecting these young women who may go wayward this is something yeah. which is used uh, very commonly used by these factories and it is obviously yeah. the same factory as family logic is also used by the hindu supremacists to justify no unions they say uh, inside the family there's no unions na so it's likewise yeah. you know it's all one nice family but the point is you know there is a, there are power structures there that you have to recognize right and i think that that is where that is there and it isn't just india in my book i also talk about how even china uh, there's a very similar ideologies in play where uh, the idea is that the patriarchal managers will be protecting the young women 
uh, by controlling them. Yeah. Likewise in Bangladesh. Okay, so basically yeah. I think that we need to look at these uh, connections and try and see that the usual idea that, oh, women in the West are free, women in the uh, East are oppressed, or, you know, these, these uh, capitalism uh, is a freeing ideology and, uh, you know, what you have in India uh, is uh, very backward, this and that. These dichotomies are not like that. They don't work like that. They, uh, yeah. you know, uh, capitalism is almost everywhere and capitalism benefits from a whole, whole lot of oppressions, including gender and caste and race and so on. So if you have to fight back, people are very happy sometimes to listen to me speak about women's rights as long as it is in a cultural sphere. But the minute I start talking about unionizing and women workers fighting back and saying that they are fighting the most important battles, then they are like, and now you're just saying it because you're communist. Now we don't want to hear that. My point is that you see, uh, it's you who is chopping it up into bits, right? You don't want yeah. to to hear about cultural oppression when it comes to gender or even caste but you're not willing to ask the question what about the Dalit women who are employed as sanitation workers uh, when they form unions and fight back uh, why is that not uh, seen as a Dalit movement why is that not seen as a feminist movement they are these are yeah. uh, these are feminist movements these are Dalit movements and of course they're left movements because the left uh, is organizing and the left is not, it's not like, oh, the left is upper caste and the workers are all Dalit. It's not like that. These are Dalit women who are leaders of their unions, right? So yeah. the point yeah. is that, you know, the, the uh, I think the weird way in which we tend to segment off issues and not see how they hang together, um, maybe we should, you know, try to think differently about those things. That concludes part one of my conversation with Kavita Prashnan. In part two, which will be released as an episode next week, we will be talking about the challenges in grassroots feminist organizing, alternative conceptions of justice, as well as the role of feminist movements and women's movements in shaping the city, the polity and the country. <laughs>